welcome to Maths Talk by AMSI Schools, where conversations in maths become part of your professional learning. My name's Leanne McMahon. Today's podcast is brought to you by AMSI's very own series of textbooks, the ICE-M Books. That stands for the International Centre for Excellence in Mathematics. The ICE-M Mathematics series develops a clear understanding of mathematical ideas and concepts for students with a range of abilities, needs and levels of interest. The textbooks have been developed to provide a coherent and solid development of mathematics ideas to support the transition from primary to secondary school. You can find more information about the ICEM books at schools.amc.org.au or click on the link in our show notes. Contact me if you want to talk about them and how you could use them in your classroom. So now, on with the podcast. Today I'm talking to Kieran Sanford, Principal of Heathmont Secondary College and MAV Board Member. Hello and welcome, Karen. Thanks, Leanne. It's lovely to be here. I was inspired to talk to Karen after reading her article in the Mathematics Association of Victoria Secondary Magazine, The Common Denominator. In it, she confronted the huge issue of creating success for all students in mathematics, the good, the bad and the ugly. Her words. Before we get on to this, can I ask you, Karen, to give us a bit of a journey through your career And what inspires a principal to take such a keen interest in maths education? (laughs) Well, I think the reason for the keen interest is probably because I I still consider myself very much a maths educator at heart. It's how I started my career and it's certainly how I intend to end it. So not that I'm ending it anytime (laughs) soon, but I guess, you know, I began my career after a bit of time in the woods wondering what to do after doing a Bachelor of Science and fell into teaching and, and loved it. But from the very first, I came into teaching at around the end of the Kennett era where there weren't a lot of teaching jobs going around. So if you could get one, you snapped it up. And my first teaching job they offered me, I, I did a method in science, biology and psychology. And of course, the job I was offered was maths, science and accounting, which was a very interesting first foray into the teaching world. But yeah, so starting off in, as a as a teacher, realizing that very quickly that maths was an area in which teachers were very much needed, but also that the teaching of maths very much needed some work. The reason I didn't do a method in maths, I could have actually done one. I'd, I'd done enough maths in my grad in my undergrad to to certainly cover it, but I didn't want to be a maths teacher. <laughs> and so coming into the profession with that mind frame, then certainly seeing what was happening on the ground, realizing what you know that I needed to be part of the change. Mm-hmm. So I went back and did additional study as part of my masters. To retrain essentially in mathematics and numeracy, mm-hmm. uh, as well as other areas, but and then, yeah, moved from moved generally through, mostly worked in outer northern suburbs mm-hmm. schools. Although now, obviously, I'm out in the outer east, but so schools where challenges are greater, well, yeah. they they can be quite great. But yeah, so I've, I've worked my way up the ranks to been a leading teacher. I've, I've done coordination. I've done pretty much any job that you can do in a school. At some point I've done it. <laughs> I was at the organiser for quite some time. I've timetabled. I've done, you know, all the bits and pieces, everything except, you know, picking up bins at the end of the day. Although I'm sure, I'm sure at periods of time I've done that too. I bet you have. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, in, in my leadership journey, I'm a curriculum assessment pedagogy. They're, they're my big loves mm-hmm. and certainly mathematics alongside that. And yeah, and having a chance to, there's been a couple of times throughout my career where I've stepped out of schools to do other things, always system related and always involved with schools. And one of those was to have the opportunity to go and work in the Department of Education in the central office, Mm -hmm. just designing resources and all sorts of fun things. So, you know, it's it's been an interesting career. It's kept me, I guess, energised, being able Mm -hmm. to sort of do different things, but always with a very clear focus on 
teaching, learning and, and maths education in particular. Oh, that's that's fantastic. It's very nice to have a fellow scientist turned mathematician <laughs> out of not necessarily the desire, yeah. then having getting that passion. And, and I absolutely agree with you on that, that just seeing what needs to be done and yeah. getting in there and doing it, it's just such an opportunity. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned in your article so many aspects that I would love to discuss in great detail. We would be here forever, mm-hmm. though. But I am going to list some of them because I'd like people to actually hit the article And I will put a reference in the show notes. These include what constitutes quality teaching, the false dichotomy between instructivist and constructivist teaching. And maybe maybe you need to come back and do a whole podcast on that. (laughs) Initial teacher education, out-of-field maths teachers, which it turns out you and I basically both Were. were. The shortage of qualified maths educators entering the workforce, formative summative assessment, ability grouping and streaming, learning loss due to COVID, new curriculum and and many others. And you've made us aware that there's no single answer to solving these issues, but you do give some great suggestions and ideas to consider in overcoming the hurdles we face. So would you mind taking us through some of these suggestions that you made in the article? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, as we were just saying, that opportunity to work in the department and develop resources certainly opened my eyes and gave me an opportunity too to step back and explore what is out there. We don't often get a chance to do that when we're in schools. <laughs> no. Very much get sucked into the busyness of everyday school life. So if you've got the opportunity to, to really spend some time, I had days where all I was doing was sitting and, and, and looking at finding different resources and finding different programs and analysing the differences between this, that and the other. So it was really a great opportunity, but it was also wonderful to be able to have the opportunity to develop resources where I knew there were gaps and to provide that direction. It's great to have the resources there, but one of the things we need to be mindful of and, and certainly you know, when we think system-wide, is that each school is its own context Mm. and each classroom is its own context within each school. So it's not enough just to have the resources there. There's also a need to ensure that those resources match Mm. what's needed in classrooms so they're adaptable, they're flexible, and that they can focus on a range of different things. As I said, there's so many different things that contribute to this so-called problem and each school will see different elements of that in different degrees. So, for example, if we talk about out-of-field teachers, my current school, we don't have any in the maths area. It's the only time in my career I can say that I've worked in a school where every single maths teacher is is a qualified maths teacher. Wow. That's it. It's very rare. And it is partly because I knew some of the things that were on offer, I was able to actually put a few of my staff through the training course that they're offering at the moment through the department. So mm. it's been opportunistic, mm. but and certainly by design, but it is a rare circumstance to be in. I thought it was interesting. I heard our director was talking to Virginia Trioli on the radio about the fact that students aren't choosing the higher level mathematics. Mm. And a suggestion was that it might have been because of -of out-of-field teachers. And Virginia came up with a really interesting comment that wouldn't out-of-field teachers actually be good because they can see where students might struggle? Yeah, I totally agree. I think there is certainly something to be said for, for this notion of expertise. And, and one of the things I think as you when you start teaching, one of the key things you need to learn is why students struggle. Because as educators and as people who have come through the system and been quite successful at it, we haven't really been there. Or if we have, it was only at sort of the end of the, you know, the last sticky part of our education. Whereas, you know, no, standing in, in, a, in a classroom, if you're seven students, 
you'll have kids in those classrooms who are struggling just to understand basic concepts like multiplication, division, subtraction, addition. So it's a very wide gap between what you learn in university and then what you're confronted with in the classroom. So, yeah, I don't think that the out-of-field factor is necessarily Mm. the, the whole gambit, but it's certainly a contributor in some cases. And certainly understanding to the mathematics behind. So one of the things I do as a, as, or have, have done as a maths educator and, and as an educator of educators, mm-hmm. I often work with young or less experienced maths teachers around, okay, what is the numeracy that sits behind and what is the conceptual bits that sit behind? So when we're teaching, for example, negative and positive numbers, mm-hmm. what are the different models that you can actually use with students to help them understand this concept? Because it's actually quite a difficult concept for kids to grasp and, you know, not just fall back on the rules and not just fall back on the positive and a negative and equals a negative and, and so on and so forth. But that requires a really deep understanding of the underlying concepts that often you haven't thought of because you've been like you've been able to quite intuitively grasp them as you've come through school so yeah Mm. and that idea we have intuitively grasped when you say a positive and a negative make a negative is that addition or multiplication you know because so many times I've got back into classrooms and seeing these things head on yeah children saying or year eights saying well it's a positive and a negative so it must end up being a negative but that sign in front of it is that a negative or a minus yep. takeaway? Yep. You know? And yep. that, to me, it's always been quite obvious that that sign's sort of stuck to the the number. Yeah, but it's not. It, it's yeah. not. It's not obvious to them. It's really no. interesting. Talking about those approaches that schools could use to support students, you talked in the article about some of the the things that Peter Sullivan mm-hmm. said, and I've read a lot of his his stuff mm. and heard him speak. I want to know how that translates into the classroom. I mean, I've, you know, heard Peter speak a lot too and and have had a lot to do with Peter over the years. But I think one of the things I like about when Peter talks about mathematics, and not just Peter, many of the experienced math educators out there, is this, I guess, emphasis on the fact that there is no one way to approach things. And it is about providing different ways for kids to access the learning. And particularly this idea that we have a set curriculum, we work through a set way, we kids do worksheets, kids do exercises. Mm-hmm. But providing opportunity for students to actually do different things and experience mathematics as it's in its purest and its most beautiful form, and that is being able to play with yeah. with the maths. Um, so some of the approaches that Peter talks about, it's particularly this idea that you pull from different pedagogies, you will do some explicit teaching, but it shouldn't be everything that you do. <laughs> You will do some problem solving, but it shouldn't be unguided. It shouldn't necessarily be just hoping the kids find their own way through the through the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, good teaching actually requires that a bit of a combination of different things, but also knowing which pedagogies to use and when and with which students, because not all students respond the same way to, to the same pedagogies. Yes. But also knowing too when to push kids. And I think one of the things we find, particularly in the secondary space, and not, not just the secondary space, but it's certainly where I see it, mm-hmm. you know, this reluctance that sometimes teachers have to open up the classroom and do more open-ended or you know, hands-on, heaven yes. forbid, things where kids can move and talk to each other. I know it's terrible. I think there's a reluctance there, but it's not through an understanding of, of those being good tasks. It's it's through a worry about how it will go. Oh, the thing that has struck me, and this, this is the reason why I asked this question about translating into classroom practices, that the whole behaviour and, and discipline issue mm. and getting these fabulous activities and hands-on, you know, yeah. h- how does that work? 
the works through through ongoing trying. Mm-hmm. It works through trial and error. It works through, I mean, the same way that we get kids to engage in anything, really. We identify what they need, you know, what engages them, what they will engage with. And then we find ways to incorporate that into our teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do it so well the first time, well, we don't give up. We just keep yeah. working on it because I think that's what we tend to do. And particularly in math where, look, the curriculum is, is quite crowded and we do feel that pressure to get yeah. through everything. And so, you know, sometimes when you, when you, especially when you're doing things like problem solving or you're doing rich tasks or you're doing those, you know, sort of more open-ended work, it can feel like it takes a long time and it does mm. and it gets messy and there's, <laughs> and there's stuff going on and you've got 25 kids all doing different things at different times and it can feel quite chaotic, which, you know, for some of us and certainly people like myself who are quite introverted, it can feel quite stressful. But at the same time, when, if you can bring that all together and if you can, if you can, you know, sort of work through that chaos, quite often come out the end with a, a much better result than you mm. would have had had you tried to just do mm. the drill and skill and the... Um... I do have do actually have an example of that. Only last week I was doing one of those um, Joe Bowler growing patterns yes. tasks and I was using matchsticks, yeah. you know, not yeah. matches but, you know, yeah, with a group of year sevens that I don't really know. Yeah. And by the end of that lesson <laughs> I had bloody matchsticks from yeah. one end of that classroom to the other and... <laughs> You know, although I'm actually quite the extrovert, it doesn't bother me, Mm. what I was thinking was, oh, my God, how am I going to get this back so that when the next teacher comes in, (laughs) it actually looks like some learning has taken place and it doesn't look like there's a bomb gone off. It was a little bit traumatic for me and Mm. I guess because I'd been out of the classroom for some time, it wasn't until I got their posters with the matchsticks on them and I saw that they had devised these patterns and talked to groups next to them and realised that when my pattern goes up by two, the formula ends up looking like 2x plus or minus. If it goes up by five, the formula ends up looking like 5x plus or minus. So they came up with this rule themselves. Yeah. Like the mess. Sometimes (laughs) it takes a bomb to go off, doesn't it, for the the love of learning to be sparked. And as someone who's very experienced... I could deal with it, but I see a lot of young teachers who feel judged and why not? They're doing their VIT, they're they're being observed at times, they're getting parents ringing up. You know, absolutely. Yeah, my child didn't learn anything. They just played yeah. with matches today. Yes, I was told. My, yeah, my child came home and told me all they did today was watch videos. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's a lot of pressure on young teachers, and I think it's leaders like you that are able to help the young teachers through these complex issues and support them through the non-worksheet learning, the messy stuff. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. yeah. I think. I mean, that's the thing. You can't fast track your way through it. No, you've got to learn the lesson. As they come, and unfortunately, that can take some time. We all have our horrendous. Oh list. gosh, we do. <laughs> we just don't talk about them very much. You introduce your article with the story of Mary, the mother of a student who had effectively been streamed out of doing a higher level mathematics. Can you tell us about that email? Yeah, sure. Uh, that was an actual an email that was sent through to MAV just from a parent. I've seen so many emails like that over, yeah. over the years and and some sort of in the reverse, I guess, in a sense, maybe ones that didn't end quite so so well. But it certainly resonated with me in that it's, it's the same story we keep hearing. And it's so actually, I think, describes some of the things that 
leading to our students not, like as you were saying before, we're having a problem with getting kids to do the, the higher mathematics in, in the later years of high school and then to go on to do maths at university. And, and one of the key things that's likely or that certainly must be contributing to it is, is what we do in those pivotal years, particularly those middle years, mm-hmm. in order to capture kids' interest mm-hmm. and give them the reason to want to learn maths. I mean, you know, we can talk about maths being a prerequisite for things and that being the stick that, that we use to get kids into maths. But the reality is, and, and we all know this, that the kids will choose subjects that they're engaged with. Mm-hmm. They'll choose subjects that they see relevance in. Mm-hmm. They'll choose subjects that they recognise as being beneficial to their future. Mm-hmm. So if we can convince them that maths is that, which it is, and we all know it is, yep. but if we do the harder work down in those, you know, years set, look, grade five, six, mm-hmm. seven, eight, nine to really show kids that that maths has real world application and that it is something that does sort of underpin a lot of the work we do, whether we're going on to university, working in a trade, staying at home, raising children, mm. all of these things require really strong numeracy and mathematics understanding. But we lose them at that point because I feel like we 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 rush to make it really complicated and academic too early. And we don't give kids a chance to really understand that before they get to that higher level mathematics, which does become, I mean, you know, the reality is VCE mathematics can be quite disconnected from real world contexts and can be quite academic, but, you know, you're more likely to get kids choosing that subject at that point if they can see the purpose behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And, and the problem with, was it Mary's daughter mm. had been basically streamed out of it? Was yeah, that actually... Seemed like she'd essentially been told that she wasn't wasn't really appropriate for considering a math pathway, which you hear quite a lot and you hear it too with a number of of teachers. One of the one of my least favourite phrase to hear from a teacher is always, "Well, this this student shouldn't be in this class," mm. and you do hear that relatively regularly, which which you know always makes me die a little bit inside, because if they shouldn't be in that class, where exactly should they be? <laughs> And, and all classes really should be open to all students. Now, there may be at times that students are unable to necessarily access the work, that especially in those year 12, like year 12 specialist class. Absolutely, that is a very challenging subject. But if a child's willing to take it on, then it's our job to support them to do as best they can. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't sort of suddenly year 12 say, I can't do maths anymore. No. If we've given them the right support all the way through, you would hope that they would be able to access it. Yeah. We sort of got on to ability grouping and streaming. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about your opinion on ability grouping and streaming? Well, I think we've all been there. God, we have too. (laughs) And many of us, I mean, I've I've had a a lot of experience working with different models around ability grouping and streaming. I've worked in SEAL programs. I've worked in... You know, boys groups, remember the, the boys groups we all played around with in the 90s about trying to you know, find these groups for these students that weren't engaging in school and putting them all in one classroom and thinking that would help. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, it very rarely did. <laughs> and it drove the it poor drove, teacher inside. Right, it drove most of us teaching this group quite, quite, quite batty. But so it's one of those really interesting things because we know the research around it is so strong and it's been there many, many decades and yet we still do it, I guess, because intuitively it makes sense or at a a level common sense would suggest it makes sense. Mm. Uh, The reality is that it doesn't Mm -hmm. and it doesn't make sense because of all of the reasons that learning is what learning is. Learning is messy learning is complex. And even when you do have, I mean, I've taught many SEAL classes and I know that even in a SEAL class, those kids are as every, they're every bit as different 
and as, as diverse as a regular classroom. Yes. They're just diverse in different ways. Yes. But in terms of ability grouping and streaming, you know, my experience is that, and we, we trialled this many years ago. I worked at a semi-rural school, but we, we trialled different methods of differentiation, we called it, and, and looked at how, how things worked. And it ended up, we tried four different methods. It was part of a teacher release program or teacher professional practice program. And the, the one we found to be most successful with the same group of kids and the same teachers was actually where we each had our kids in our class and we all taught them in a differentiated way within the same room together. Wow. As opposed to sending them off in different directions based on whether they were a wombat or a koala or whatever else. Isn't it funny how the wombats are always the They're always the slow ones. Yes. <laughs> no one wants to be in the wombat group. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mentioned before instructivist and constructivist dichotomy. Yeah. And Look, more importantly, I think this real push towards what we call explicit or direct teaching. Yep. Now, in my head, when I heard that, I thought, you know what I've been trying to do when I work with secondary schools? Get them away from yeah, too much. Know, standing in front yeah. of the, the class and mm. telling them what to do. Can you talk to me about, first of all, this dichotomy, but about explicit teaching and where it belongs and what it looks like in the classroom? Absolutely. I think the thing to realise when we talk about direct teaching or explicit teaching in particular, what that actually means is actually quite different to what many people think it does. Explicit teaching is not standing up the front and telling children things. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, there, there are a couple of models or a number of models around, you know, how to do explicit teaching well. And explicit teaching done well is absolutely an important tool for any teacher to have and certainly a teacher of mathematics. It is necessary and it is important. But unfortunately, explicit teaching is not what happens in many classrooms, even the ones where it looks like we're having direct teaching because the kids are all sitting in rows and they're all looking at books and they're all very quiet and they're watching the teacher and the teacher is talking. Mm -hmm. That isn't necessarily explicit teaching. Sometimes that is lecturing. Yeah. Sometimes it is just talking. Sometimes <laughs> it is, it's not much learning going on at all. So it's this idea that just the teach that that's what leads to effective teaching that needs to be turned on its head. Mm -hmm. And, and when we talk about this dichotomy, there is in the narrative that comes out, particularly from your more sort of conservative quarters, that that is what effective teaching should look like. Mm. And this idea of constructive teaching where children just do their own thing is a, is a bad thing. And, and there's sort of, you're either one or the other. And mm. there's not this notion of, well, perhaps you can be a little bit of everything. I mean, I think there's, there has to be, and certainly recently, more recently, over the last few years, there's certainly been a much stronger emphasis on the importance of student agency and student voice in the classroom, not just choosing, you know, whether they're going to do a PowerPoint or, or a poster presentation for their for their outcome, but but actually giving kids an opportunity to take a bit more control of, of what they're learning and how they're learning it mm -hmm. and being able to exercise that agency to actually say, no, actually this works for me or this doesn't. Yeah. And in order to do that, re the reality is that all teachers need to be able to use all of those different techniques, whether they're instructivist or constructivist or something in between, at the time that it's needed with the student who needs it most. Mm. So that's, yeah, if, if, if all you're doing is, is one thing, then you're not meeting the needs of the vast majority of kids in the classroom. When the draft Australian curriculum came out for mm. mathematics, there was a lot of discussion, mm. and certainly in the AMSI office, because AMSI, we are almost like the, the conduit between maths education and mathematicians. Yes. And the mathematicians are saying, you know, we need more direct teaching. And the educationalists are saying, well, we actually need a more constructivist plan. And I'm sort of saying, actually, yeah. can we do both? 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I think really what we need is better support to help teachers understand how, how and when to recognise when to use which ones mm. and to get better at blending them. That's there's, right. There's really no point in directly teaching children who aren't paying any attention <laughs> because you don't get anywhere. Mm. And mm. and unfortunately, it doesn't matter how good you are as an, as an explicit teacher, if you, all you're doing is is running through the curriculum and trying to cover off every content descriptor through explicit teaching, you're going to lose half the kids. Mm. I want to move now on to COVID and specifically the effects on learning of those two years of lockdowns that we had on and off. What do you think was the effect on the learning of mathematics? I don't see a huge amount of this notion of learning loss that, that is often touted in the media. In terms of the academic side, Students seem to have kept up with that. I think maybe in the area of reading, that'll be an area that emerges as, as a space where we need to do a bit more work just yeah. because students haven't had that support to learn to read as much as they would have uh-huh. with someone around them. But the human brain's an amazing thing. It's very good at catching things up when it needs to and it's it's ready to do what it's ready to do when it's ready to do it. And I think we see that. So, you know, you still see the fits and starts, but... I, I think there's hope mm. for, for kids coming back from COVID. But yes, the, the behavioural and learning, relearning how to, to be together and to collaborate and to mm. talk and to and to work together. To miss out on Year 7 camp and, and yeah. those sorts of things that actually gels you as a group mm. and gets to know the teachers, the yeah. leaders, all of that sort of thing. Absolutely. I think, you know, sports, musicals, all of those sorts all of things, of those that, things. Yep. that they missed out on that, Academically, actually, we're pretty good at keeping them up to date. Yeah, and certainly the data bears that with last year's NAPLAN's, mm. NAPLAN results that is showing that there has been less of a loss than I think they were expecting. Yeah. In fact, you know, Victoria outperformed all the other states. So, mm. yeah, it's it's definitely there's, there's hope there for mm. the academic side, but it is. And, As and my daughter said, we missed out on all the fun stuff. Correct. We, yeah. <laughs> we still had to go to work. Yeah. We still had to go to school. Yep. We, we still had to do all of those hard things, but we missed out on the social life and, yep. and the fun and, and yep. all of that. Yep. So poor things, no wonder they're, they're misbehaving. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of what we've talked about probably speaks really well to this notion of this student disposition and, and mindset kind of work. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things certainly coming out of COVID, there's been a big push from, you know, the department but also other areas around require needing us to support students' well-being alongside their academic learning, mm-hmm. which is, you know, totally valid and, and absolutely 100% needed. But one of the key things with maths, you know, maths is an area that we know has always been one in which there are, well, it's, it's fraught with all sorts of emotions, really. It's, it's probably one of the mo- most, one of the subjects that elicits the, the strongest emotional responses from people, whether they be positive or negative. Mm-hmm. And you know, this notion of dispositions and people's mindsets towards mathematics and the impact that that actually has on student performance and students' willingness to perform Mm. is quite extraordinary. And I I know as as maths teachers, we see that all the time. You know, we get students coming into our classrooms who just tell you that they don't do maths. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then having to explain to them that maybe they will. (laughs) That's right. And um, you don't see... Too many articles on reading anxiety. No. Whereas maths anxiety is huge, absolutely huge, and maybe something that we need to look at more and work with that mindset 
as part of the Choose Maths project, we did a number of yeah. parent nights. Basically, my, my attitude is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You stand up in front of them and you say, how do you feel about maths? And they've all gone, ah! yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the ones that came. Many don't come because our family doesn't do maths. And how many times at parent teachers have you heard, oh, well, I, never, I was never any good at maths? Not just parent teachers. I've presented to principal groups that have had a similar reaction. And and it's not just principal groups. It's, it's, it's across the system. It's everybody. It's everywhere. It's all throughout society. You'll hear people talking on the news about how they're not very mathsy or maths is a scary subject because it is. It's, it's allowable. We let, we let people be not good at maths because it's So it's how, how do we go about changing this? Well, again, like everything within this space, it's multifaceted and there's no one right answer. But there are a number of things we know that we can do in order to try and address it and try to turn it around. And that, and that involves working with students and kids and, and children even before they get into to school. Um, maths anxiety is something we know develops, it can start to develop very early, but it also can come in around about the time that ons- at the onset of uh, adolescence is another area and it tends to get worse and the, it peaks at around year nine, year 10, yeah. which is when kids are, of course, making their choices as to what they study the following year and then that potentially leads to where they potentially might go beyond that. So... You know, it's not something that you can address in one class or one lesson, and it's something that requires both a preventative but also a therapeutic approach as well. We actually need to address the anxiety in mass anxiety once it's formed, but it's what can we, what can we do and how can we teach so that mass anxiety doesn't develop in the first place. Mm. And when we teach math as a disconnected series of rules and steps that we have to follow that nobody can ever remember, that's when I think we lead Mm-hmm. kids to anxiety that and, and things like time tests and, and putting kids under pressure I know my son today actually just did his first methods sack for his year 12 class and he was he was an anxious wreck and yet yeah. my son's never demonstrated a, a skerrick of anxiety but he was quite he was quite anxious about his 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 sack today so it's something that that gets them at, at some point it's it's how to prevent it happening mm-hmm. too early Kids will actually choose to bow out rather than stick with it. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, at year twelve, they're all going. Yeah. In, they're all anxious. They're yeah. all, you know, it's part of the process. And yeah. and they deal with it. And yeah. and yeah. Whereas if you're going, if you're doing a time test at year five, you know, yes. tables seven fours, seven fours. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of this. You know, we see it. All, I feel the same way. Like certainly, not, and this is probably something that many many math teachers also feel as well when you're doing problems on the board with kids and you've got the whole class looking at you there are times where you go six times four uh, 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 because you you are it's that anxiety you feel it yourself and you know that it exists so you know it's really important then when that happens to me and it does tell the kids I say hey this is not something I can do very well when people are watching me and you do the same when you're sitting down and working with students you know side by side helping them through a problem and they get to a point they you can see they just need to work out three times seven but their brain's gone blank yeah. because the teacher or in this case the principal is sitting next to them <laughs> and watching them and mm. it's just saying to them hey it's okay I know I'm, I'm here I'm watching you and I know that makes it hard and that's okay and what something that I talk to especially year eights ish is cognitive load yes. and and say you're learning say they're learning some sort of algebra and the division of algebra cancelling mm. and I say twenty one divided by three isn't coming yeah automatically, automatically. to you so you see calculate just cut yeah. that cognitive load yeah. and this is a thing and this bit is taking up too much of your brain so 
let's leave the bit of your brain to learn the new stuff. Yeah. That old stuff will come. Just sit there. You know, yeah. it'll come. Yeah. I believe that if a kid wants to use a calculator in your eight, they should be allowed to. Yeah, I, absolutely. I firmly believe but it's, that. I think it's true. It's, it's a cognitive load. It's a good point to bring up, particularly when, you know, if, if, if you're over-relying on things like textbooks, one of the things you'll find with using textbooks, and it doesn't matter which one you use because they all do it to, to, to varying degrees, but when you introduce a concept, sometimes within the textbook, they move too quickly when they start to introduce. So, for example, you know, I was, I was teaching a class the other week. Uh, we were doing algebraic fractions. <laughs> now, there's two words that strike fear into the heart of many people and certainly you ten students who necessarily the strongest. Probably the two most feared words. Absolutely. Algebra vocabulary. Yeah. So bring them together and, oh, my goodness, you've got children, you know, screaming to leave, to leave the room. These ones weren't. They were actually quite good and they stuck with me. But but what I noticed when it wasn't a class I regularly teach, I, I was running extras as, as a principal. I don't actually have the luxury of my own class, unfortunately. I just sort of step in where I'm allowed to. But, yeah, so teaching these students, going through and went through the algebra part and we went through the fraction part and we put it all together. And then I realised within when I was looking through the, the questions the kids had set in their textbook, the teacher had left work for them to do, that the first question started off really nice and gentle. And by the second question, they were introducing negatives. There was, there was different, that was, it was just, it yeah. just went from, from here's a new yeah. thing to here's five more things to incorporate with that new thing. You, and do all you got the same that. Time. Yeah. yeah. You got that. Now chuck in negatives. That's, That's right. right. Correct. Now chuck in squares and yeah. cubes and all of that. Yeah. It's, it just, you've got to have, as, as an educator, you need to be able to go, okay, that is too much. Let's take the negatives out. Let's just deal with mm. this. Mm. But it's, it's, it's funny. The, the reliance we have on these things, uh, even things like you know, I spent some time with one of the thing, one of the tools I worked on in town was the Mass Curriculum Companion, mm-hmm. and going through and rewriting some of the things on that when we transferred it onto the web-based platform and developed you know some explanations using pictorial sort of ways to explain things like simultaneous equations, uh-huh. and I presented that to a group of educators um, a couple of years back and and. Didn't get much feedback. Generally, we didn't tend to get a lot of people emailing through, but the ones we did, it was usually people asking for the worksheet that went with the explanation. And you're like, well, it's it's not really designed for a worksheet. You could build your own. Yeah. But the idea is that this is an explanation that you can then use to help kids understand Hmm. what is in their textbooks or or the worksheet or whatever it is. There's plenty of of examples. Yeah. The explanations that, that, we really need. That's it. And getting kids to build their own examples, like, you know, especially if you're using pictorial representations, getting kids to represent things themselves. Mm-hmm. Far more powerful than using a worksheet. Absolutely. But we just tend to we grab at the worksheets. We do. Yeah. Coming back to the Mary story, mm. you know, this idea of, of pushing kids out because they can't. Mm. Oh. And then only allowing. You hear it a lot that, you know, kids have to earn their place in a methods class or they have to earn their place in a... And you do think, oh, gosh. I mean, even if the reality is with methods in particular, it is a prerequisite for a lot of courses. It is. By denying kids access, you are denying them a pathway. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really important to be aware of. And, and look, it might be that that student's not headed towards a 40 in, meth- in, in methods, but, but if you can get them through and they can mm-hmm. get an S, mm-hmm. they can actually succeed at, at getting through the course, they will be better off. Mm-hmm. And if they choose after doing it for one year that perhaps it's not quite where they're at, well, that's a choice they've made. Mm -hmm. It's not something we've pushed them into. And we we do a fair bit of work around counselling at the moment at my school where you do get kids trying something. They'll they'll, they'll sign themselves up for methods and 
two weeks into year 11, they'll go, no, I don't want to do this. You're like, you're two weeks in. Yeah. You've got to stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> you give it right. at least a semester. That's right. So yeah, you're doing it one. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit tricky. It's going yeah. to be a little bit challenging to begin with, but that's yeah. how it is. No matter which subject we put you in, mm. that's what it will be like. So, you know, there's this idea that we do need to help kids be a bit more persistent and a bit more resilient when it comes to their learning. I remember going to, I've got twins and I went to their year 11 parent teacher about Easter time and I'm embarrassed to say that I said to the methods teacher, look, you know, I think they probably both need to move to general. And he said, oh no, (laughs) they won't be doing that. (laughs) And I'm like, I was quite taken aback. Uh He said, the penny will drop and it will drop at some stage. It might not be until sort of later this year. He was right. Mm. And, you know, they both did methods in year 12 and did very well. But a maths teacher, an advocate for choosing highest level maths you can, Mm -hmm. and I was suggesting that they give it up. So, you know. Yeah. It's a confession, <laughs> but it's also, it's, it's a warning story for, for yeah. people and they did very well. Great. But even if they hadn't done so well, they'd still have that S in methods behind them. Yeah. And Nancy, we have a lot of careers materials and things like that say, you can do this because you studied maths at mm. year 12 mm. or methods at year 12. I'd like to thank Karen for joining me today for what I think has been a really enlightening maths talk. Thanks so much, Karen. It's been great sharing the studio with you and having you share your expertise, thoughts and stories. <laughs> no worries, Leanne. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been lovely to actually sit and just chat maths for a little while. <laughs> Isn't it nice? I don't get a chance to do it very often, so this <laughs> I do this job. <laughs> If you have some thoughts or questions about today's episode or some suggestions for future episodes, why don't you get in touch? You can follow us on Twitter at AMSI Schools or on Facebook by searching for Choose Maths or One Word. The podcast notes from today's episode can be found on the AMSI Schools teacher support website, calculate.org.au. Just click on podcasts in the menu bar. Accompanying the episode notes will be some useful links and resources for teachers so you can explore the ideas we've discussed today in more detail. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, don't forget to like us as this really helps raise the profile of our podcast. Thanks for listening and don't forget to check out that range of Ice M textbooks. See you next time.